21. Bet you thought I was going to go to the Gospels, eh? <laughs> Tricked you. Tricked you again. No more, no more armor of God. First um, Chronicles 21. Are you guys looking forward to Easter? Yes. Yeah? I, it's coming up quick, hey? Did it kind of sneak up on anyone else? Yeah, it's like next, it's like a couple of days away. I've already eaten like 27 packs of mini eggs. Uh, it's not even Good Friday. Don't worry, they were an omelet, so it's healthy. Uh, anyway, I, I, have, I always had great memories of Easter growing up with the chocolate egg hunts and the big family meals. Who's got a couple of those coming up? Yeah? Nice. Nice. Well, happy cooking. Um, I remember there was like sometimes emotional dramas at church depicting the events, you know, that followers of Jesus celebrate at Easter. It's a powerful time in the life of the church, isn't it? This is like our favorite. Easter's our jam. No? No, your crowd, Matt. I, th- I thought we'd... It's okay. <laughs> don't worry about it. Um, I, d- I don't have a drama. Who's anyone in those dramas? Don't be bashful. No one? No one got to play Jesus being resurrected? Oh, I got to do that once. It was super fun. They laid the sheet over me. And then as the crescendo built in the soundtrack, I was like, wind flowing in my hair, standing like the resurrected Lord. I don't know. Anyway, uh, you know what? Forget the drama scene. Uh, it's it's um, not for us this morning. I don't have a drama for you. But... First Chronicles 21, I do have what I believe to be a very gripping story uh, that I think communicates part of the message of Easter in a fairly intense uh, but also vivid way. And so I'm going to pray just before we uh, really um, kind of crack on with this. Lord, I just thank you for what we're about to celebrate. Lord, it's the reason for the hope that we have. You dying in our place and rising again to prove that death was beaten, that there is life beyond death. Uh, it's just the central truth of what we believe. And it's just evidence of how good you are. We love you, Lord, and I just pray that this morning your word would be powerful, that your spirit would speak to each heart, and that you just have your way in all of us, in your name. Amen. Amen. I referenced Easter uh, last week uh, when we looked at the message of, of submitting to the kingship and authority of Jesus. I don't know if you remember that, but it was right around the time Jesus was uh, in that discussion with Pilate and was given over to be crucified. Um, when Jesus went to the cross, I said, it wasn't in Pilate's control, not at all. It was all Jesus walking in obedience and unity to the purpose and plan of God. You with me? It wasn't like Pilate going, I'm so in control. Jesus, you're going to die. No, no, no. It was a story that had been set in motion uh, since the beginning of time for the redemption of humanity. And so that account that we looked at with Jesus and Pilate was a lot closer, like chronologically, uh, to the resurrection story um, that will take center stage next week. Uh, And so the lead up to Easter here uh, this morning, we're going to look at It goes back quite a ways, okay, this story. But I think you'll plainly see the parallels, even though it's not even close to the timeline of Jesus going to the cross. But I think you'll see the parallels between what we look at this morning and the message of Easter for next week. So 1 Chronicles 21. I'm going to shoot straight with you, okay? This is perhaps one of the most bizarre like kind of fantastical accounts in the entire life of David, all right? 
The, 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 I mean, the whole Goliath incident has got nothing on what we're about to look at. This is not uh, one that uh, I was taught in Sunday school, okay? I, 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 one day I'd like to dig up the flannel graphs and see if they were hiding them underneath for this story, uh, but I suspect they just weren't made because it's just really bizarre. Uh, and I want to suggest um, that you have your Bibles open. I see a bunch of you do. That's awesome. Or your apps. It's all good. I just, I just want you to be able to look at the words, okay? I want, I want you to look at the words. So you, a, so you know I'm not making them up, but B, so they, they can sink in. Like, like it, it is that bizarre. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and honestly, this is full disclosure, I cannot explain some of the events that we're about to read, Okay? I know you might be thinking, well, then get off the stage. We need the professional. I don't know what to tell you. There's some things in here that I cannot explain. They're that bizarre. But it's not for shock value that I picked them uh, for us this morning. Uh, I'll say it again. It's because I believe that contained in this Old Testament passage is a vivid portrayal of the message of Easter. Okay? We good? Okay. That's what I like to hear. Um, I'm going to set the scene a bit before you. Uh, uh, before, we, uh, before I show you how this, this Easter message uh, kind of comes out of this, but we'll get there soon. First Chronicles 21, I'll look at verse 1. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Let's stop there for a second. The opening scene here is really all too commonplace for the life of followers of Jesus. It's actually the reality of most human beings most of the time. Here's what I mean. The enemy, Satan, as he's named here, is out to cause humans to sin. Yeah? Do you, do you know that? <laughs> You're like, hmm, not me. I don't know what, I can't relate. Uh, like, he's out to cause humans to sin. Sin separated us from God, and the enemy knows this because it separated him from God. Yeah? He knows from experience what sin does to a relationship with God. So he does his level best every day to pull everyone down into sin because he knows how corrosive it is to our relationship with Jesus. Yeah? So so this is all too commonplace, this idea of him rising up against Israel and inciting David uh, to to sin. If if you could bottle sin, I was thinking about this week as we're uh, we're cleaning up for a move. Um, You know how some cleaning agents have like skulls and crossbones? There's like the hand dipping in that turns to a skeleton. It's fairly graphic, if I'm honest. But um, if you could bottle sin, it would have the skull and crossbones. Cross, cross buns. What's that? I'm hungry. Uh, who can tell? Uh, anyway, um, it would have the skull and crossbones warning on it. That hand turning in. It's that corrosive. It's just destructive to our relationship with Jesus. And so the enemy knows this. And so he's out for all of us. So this whole, this intro here is not that bizarre. You with me? It's kind of all too commonplace, actually. We're told that Satan goes on the offense, tries to trip up King David into sin, and he succeeds. It tells us 
and shows us that a spiritual battle is going on, yeah? That there is an enemy who's out to get us. You with me so far? There's an enemy who's out to get us going on underneath the surface. But here, what it looks like on the surface is what? What does it look like? I'll give you a hint. It's, it's David taking a census. Yeah? That's what it looks like in the physical world. We know that underneath the, in the spiritual, there's a, there's a battle going on that Satan's going, I've got to try to trip him up. What it looks like is David going, I'm going to count my troops. Interesting? I think that this is, um, th- this is so often how the enemy works. It doesn't seem that bad. He just wants to know how many people are in his army. Is, is that so wrong? But that's often how the enemy works. He's working in the spiritual realm, going on the offense, but what it looks like in the physical world is something that doesn't seem that bad. Yeah? Something easy to justify. He, he's tricky with his attacks. You with me so far? Yeah? Good. Uh, and, and so, but, but Joab here is not so easily tricked. He's not so easily tricked. Joab thinks so strongly about this that he pleads with King David not to do it. Please, don't do it. Joab is going, you know how many are yours, David? All of them. They're all, all of them are yours. And they're going to they're gonna get bigger. They will multiply. Don't do this. This request to count them all is not a righteous one. Well, why? Why not? Isn't for the organization of a kingdom that size? Isn't knowing how many you have important? What's going on here? Well, a couple of things. First of all, going back to kind of some of the uh, specifics of Old Testament law, God had set very specific times and standards around the taking of a census. Okay? He'd set very specific times around taking a census. There was a right way and a wrong way. A right time and a wrong time. Do you want to know why it was wrong? So do I. I have no idea. I have no idea. Ultimately, though, God doesn't owe us an explanation of the standards that he sets. Yeah? He doesn't owe us an explanation. My guess is because they would have frequently fallen into the same trap that David does. But that's my guess. I don't know for sure. But the reason it was so wrong is actually besides the point. The point is David knew about the regulations on taking a census that God had laid out. And rather than sticking to what he knew was right, he went against God. Yeah? You you can see that. Now, if taking a census of our soldiers is not that relatable to us, I know me, I always forget to count my soldiers, so it doesn't really apply, but um, that was a joke. Thanks, John. Um, You guys are like, he has soldiers? I don't have any. Do you have any? I don't have any. Uh, Anyway, uh, the deeper thing, though, that was going on here likely is relatable. And it was simply this. David had a proud heart. Yeah? David had a proud heart. The motivation in David's heart is to find out how big his army is. He actually says it to Joab. Report back to me so that I may know how many there are. Like, that's it? just so you can know how many. Like there isn't some strategy here. You're not about to go on the offense for the kingdom of God, nothing. You just want to know how big your army is. Go count how many soldiers I have. I want to know how vast my army is. I want to know how powerful my military might truly is. 
Do you recognize the pride that's infecting his heart here? I, I think it's obvious. And it's even worse when you think about David's story and where he came from. Let's do some recap. David was the youngster. He was kind of a loner. He was obscure, buried in the back of a shepherd's field for years. When everyone else was practicing sword fighting, David was like, nah, I'm going to write some songs. He was like hipster, like, (laughs) you could find him at the coffee shop writing worship songs on his harp, you know? This is David, and until, I mean, that was him watching over the sheep until through no credit of his own or anything he had done to earn it, God chose him and anointed him, gave him the throne, gave him military victories, gave him favor, gave him everything. Yeah? Gave him everything. He was a nobody. And God's like, I'm going to give you the kingdom. I'm going to give it all to you. David's life was an epic story of the graciousness of God to bless and show favor to an undeserving human being. Yeah? And here David was going, I want to know just how large my army is. I'm kind of the man. How powerful is my kingdom? Have you ever heard the Fresh Prince song? No, I will not start it because we will all have it in our heads for the rest of the time. Uh, but, and seriously, I'm not actually trying to make light of this. I, I want to, the last three lines of the song um, that is sung so often it needs to be destroyed. But uh, the, the last three lines of the opening song say this. I looked at my kingdom. I was finally there to sit on my throne as the prince of Bel Air. You know, you know this line? <laughs> believe me, I could go way more hip-hop, but I'm just not going to. But I was thinking about that. I was reading through this and thinking about David and his life. I thought, Will, your kingdom, Will, your throne? Let us think about what happened to you. You just got shipped there from the projects of Philly by your mom in a taxi. She couldn't even be bothered to drive him. Doesn't have a driver's license, apparently. Like, he just got shipped there from the projects. And his uncle, who studied and worked his entire life to become a respected judge in L.A., bought a mansion for his family and took you in. And it's your kingdom, Will? It's yours, is it? You're the prince of all this? Not so much, right? Not so much. That's taking a little bit of credit for something that should not have been your credit. You with me? You see what point I'm getting at? I'm not trying to like distract or or treat light of this. I'm actually trying to make a serious point here. It's kind of a funny example, but don't miss what I'm getting at. The root of pride in David was utterly repulsive to the God who gave him everything through no credit of his own. Yeah? And that's what I think is rooted here in this taking of a census. Yeah, it doesn't seem that bad. Okay, but God's interested in the condition of our hearts. And if there's a root of pride going there, believe me, God wants it out. Yeah? You with me so far? Good. Joab recognizes it, pleads with David not to do it. Side note, if you ever have a friend like Joab who is willing to call you out and pleads with you to follow what is right, Thank God for that person and listen to them because they are a treasure 
and, and not to be taken lightly. Yeah? Joab's objection is overruled by the king. Look at verse 4. The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of God. So he punished Israel. It's funny. Even when I first read that, my thought was, wow, David built a large army. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. I read it and I gave credit to David. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, but you can see how David's actions were detestable to God. Pride and disobedience in the heart of a human is repulsive to God. And that's actually the word used. Now, so far, as I mentioned, this is not that bizarre. But hold on, because things are about to get crazy. Verse 8. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, option A. Three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you, option B. Or three days of the sword of the Lord. Days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Okay. Is that crazy to anyone else? That bizarre? Like, I, I read this, proud heart of a person, nothing new there. Person disobeying God, tale as old as time. Literally. <laughs> Adam starts it, disobeying God. This is nothing new. God giving the guilty person three punishments to pick from, all of varying lengths of time, all more frightening than the last. I have never heard of this before. I literally cannot think of another occasion in the Bible that this happens. But as bizarre as it is, this is how the first part of this chapter plays out. And it demonstrates the first like, like Easter message point that I think is an important starting point for all of us. And it's this. God has, or had, tremendous wrath on sin, and it needed to be punished. Point one, note takers can write that one down. God had tremendous wrath on sin and it needed to be punished. There is no two ways about it. If there is wrongdoing, there needs to be punishment, yeah? Because otherwise there is no justice, correct? If there's wrongdoing, there needs to be punishment. Otherwise, there's no justice. Think about it. If we all ran around doing whatever we wanted, taking stuff that looked good, you know, I'm hitching up someone else's boat to my car and driving away. He comes running out with a bat. I'm like, see ya. Like, you know, running red lights because we're in a hurry. Beating up people who made us angry. 
hey, mean thing. I actually can make a very good punch sound, but that's besides the point. Another time. If there's wrongdoing without punishment, the world breaks down into chaos almost instantly. Yeah? Can, can you see that? And so, so for injustice to be corrected, and therefore for justice to rule, there has got to be punishment for sin. Yeah? There just has got to be. Does that remind you of anything Easter related? <laughs> you know, of, about punishment for, you know, someone's sin? Tell you what, if it's not clear, we'll get there. Uh, look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. He makes his choice. It's option C. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. This is possibly one of the most frightening scenes I have ever read in the Bible. Were you picturing it as we read it? A giant angel of death, sword (laughs) wreaking havoc on the city of Jerusalem. Can you see why we didn't learn this one in Sunday school? Yeah? I mean, fair enough. It's, it's, it's fairly intense. I think it's not an accident that the root of David's pride was in his military might and the punishment for that sin was, was God destroying the people, the men that, God, uh, that David was so proud against. For all of his one million, you know, 500 odd thousand men, that he was so proud of, they are utterly defenseless against the power and strength of God. Yeah? Utterly defenseless. They can do nothing. But David has made his choice. Identifying a characteristic of God, did you catch that part? What was it? His mercy. Identified his mercy. David throws his life on God's mercy. And for a time, God sends the punishment that David had selected, plaguing the city, claiming 70,000 lives. But David was right about God's mercy, it turns out. As the punishment in the form of a colossal angel soldier is destroying the people, God is grieved about this and commands the angel to stop. Enough! Withdraw your hand, he says. Now just picture that for a second. Like picture the chaos and fear and the destruction going on in the city. And then suddenly, like it looks like, if I was in there running around, it would look like it's the end for all of us, right? It looks like it's game over. Looks like there's nothing that can, that can ever stop or, or save it. And then suddenly this, this shout rings out. Enough, withdraw your hand. Can you imagine 
the relief that must have overwhelmed them to hear those words ring out over the city? Can, can you? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the absolute gratefulness that the Lord had stayed the angel's hand? Picture it with me. Can you imagine the en- immense gratitude in their hearts that he had, in fact, extended mercy to them rather than completing the destruction? I hope you can imagine it because it's the same mercy that Jesus shows you. Yeah? It's the same mercy. I can imagine that relief. I can imagine that gratefulness. I can imagine the gratitude that must have poured out of their hearts because Jesus showed that mercy to me, an undeserving sinner. Yeah? You with me? And this is the second point in the Easter message, that God has mercy for sinners. Isn't that great? (laughs) Isn't that great news? The first point, the starting point, is that God had tremendous wrath on sin, and sin needed to be punished. But the second point is that God has a mercy for sinners, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. David after his foolishness, identifies this characteristic when he selects his punishment and God demonstrates that characteristic while the punishment is happening. As, he read, as I read these verses this week, I couldn't stop picturing the cross. I, I, it just keeps, it kept pushing its way to the forefront of my mind. The cross that Jesus died on was a place where God's wrath was poured out on sin while simultaneously being a place where, where God's mercy extended to you and me. Yeah? In a way that we don't have to go to the cross. All I could think about when I read these verses was Jesus going to the cross for me. I was David. Not so much in military might or royal lineage, but I was him. We all have been. Proud hearts, going our own way instead of his, taking credit for things that were all him, no merit of our own, undeserving sinners. And yet, even though there was an excruciating punishment for my sin, Jesus took it and offered me mercy. And I'm so grateful. Yeah? Is this not the message of Easter? Can you see it in these verses? I'm so grateful for his mercy. There's actually a lot more we could chat about in in this chapter. It goes on. David makes a sacrifice at the threshing floor of Arana. He insists on paying full price for it when it was offered to him for free. There's some interesting things we could observe there, but I I actually kind of want to just hone in here on that, that second point, that there's mercy for sinners. I'm not going to overcomplicate it this morning. Easter is a big deal. There's no simple, or there's simply no way to overemphasize it. And when we look uh, next week at, um, well, what I believe will be the the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means, we will look at a couple more things of infinite value that you simply cannot overstate. They're, They're that important. They're of eternal significance for every human being. And so that's going to be great. But this morning, 
I just want to focus in on those two starting points. It's, it's the story of humanity and it's the story of God interacting. God had tremendous wrath on sin and it needed to be punished. Otherwise, injustice would rule. The, the world and the history would be chaos. So he had tremendous wrath on sin and said it needed to be punished. But that second point, we were the sinners and God shows us mercy. I don't want to overcomplicate that this morning. It's a message that David learned in an absolutely unforgettable way that day in Jerusalem. And it's a message that we keep coming back to year after year. Um, actually, we should come back to that day after day. Yeah? What, what does the word say about his mercy? Anyone, anyone know? It's everlasting. How often is it? What? Yeah. I don't know who said that, but it's every, his mercies are new every morning. Yeah? That means when you wake up and take your first breath as a conscious human being each day, you're breathing in his mercy. Yeah? It's new every single morning. The wrath of God on sin was righteous and just. Sin needed to be punished. But Jesus taking it on himself, bearing the, the punishment for our sin and extending mercy to us, it what makes him him. It what makes him awesome and perfect and great. His mercy, it's evidence of his great love for us. It's what makes me want to give my whole life to follow him. Yeah? Because he showed that great mercy to me. It's that mercy that draws out the overwhelming gratitude and relief from my heart. And, and I love him for his righteous judgment and his justice. And I love him for his mercy. You with me? This morning we're going to move into our um, kind of response time. Yeah, actually, maybe do you want to come up, Ash, in the band? This morning I was trying to think, like, how do we respond to this idea rather than just kind of thinking about it and going? I was thinking that perhaps you're coming from one of two places. Either you, either the mercy of God kind of got brushed aside and kind of forgotten about, maybe. And maybe you needed to remember it. Maybe you needed to remember his mercies are new every morning. Just like the enemy rose up against David, maybe he's been rising up against you. Maybe guilt or negativity or discouragement or sin or pride, whatever it might be. Like, like identify it for what it is. It's the spiritual battle of the enemy trying to separate you from God. So, so call him out on that. And say, oh no, that's not true. His mercies are new every morning. And they cover me. Yeah? And so that you don't have to believe his lies. You don't have to believe the lies. His inciting against you doesn't have to hold any power. Yeah? And so maybe you just needed that reminder. And this morning you can stand with like guilt and shame just washing away. One of my all-time favorite verses, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because his mercy washed it away. Yeah? His mercy extended to you. 
and there's no condemnation anymore. So maybe you needed that reminder. And so as we like sing and respond, I just encourage you, like stand in the mercy of Christ. Stand in the mercy of Christ and love him for, for it. Like identify it and just love him for it. Yeah? Or perhaps you actually never have received the mercy of God. Maybe you've lived your life going your own way. I'm, I'm the, the king of this castle. I do what I, I want. Perhaps you've never known you needed forgiveness. Maybe you thought, well, nobody's perfect, so I guess I'm all right. Well, you're half right. <laughs> Nobody is perfect. And that imperfection that is in you is called sin, and it needs to be forgiven. It needs the mercy of God. So yes, nobody's perfect, but that means everyone needs the mercy of a Savior. And so that mercy extends to you today because it's part of who God is. We can see it when he stays the angel's hand and says enough and doesn't complete the punishment. Everyone needs the mercy of God. It means you need the mercy of God. And so that's actually an unbelievable realization to have because his mercy is here. It's, it's part of him. It's part of his presence. And so this morning, as I mentioned, like if you've never come to God seeking his mercy and seeking his forgiveness, this morning you can, and then it'll be there. And, and, and then it'll stay with you. And then every day you wake up, you can say, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you offer me life when I deserve the punishment for sin, which is, is death. Yeah? Let's stand. And let's just like thank God for his mercy and his grace and, and his love that extends to us because he's so good.